I am pleased to have today Dr. Christopher Kelly from NYU Langone Health, Department of Urology. He's faculty member there. He's been there for uh, over 23 years uh, as a specialist in male urinary dysfunction. Chris has many medical treatments to treat BPH. And even as a holistic practitioner that I am, and of course, I'm always thinking, what's the best natural approach? I think it's also very important to know what is the best, the best medical approach in case you do need a medical treatment for, uh, for BPH. Chris and I spoke about what is BPH briefly, his screening process, his ability to differentiate from, let's say, overactive bladder or prostatitis and other pelvic problems and BPH. In other words, how do you know that this is the urinary problem is from an enlarged prostate and nothing else? We talked about the use of a urodynamic test, a urodynamic, he explained what that is, which uh, urodynamic testing assesses the health of the bladder to determine if indeed urinary problems are caused by the bladder. And then we went over his medical approaches from least invasive to medical treatments. And we went over a few of those type of treatments with a little bit of extra focus on aqua ablation, which is the treatment that he utilizes most these days for BPH. So enjoy my conversation with Chris Kelly from NYU Langone Health. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where it is my goal to help you with your prostate health and how to live better with age. We have Chris Kelly from the NYU Langone Urology Department. Chris, thanks for being on. I, I know you did rounds this morning and you kindly chose to be on the show. So I really appreciate it. It's always my pleasure to spread the word. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure, Chris. Chris, BPH. So first of all, my my understanding of what you do at our department is that you're pretty much a general urologist. So that means you can probably see anything that comes in. A, correct me if I'm wrong. B, I do know that you do a lot of BPH. So are you a more of a BPH urologist or are you a general urologist? What, what, what would be your specialization, if any, at this point in your career? My specialty in the practice is avoiding dysfunction in the male, okay, yeah. which incorporates almost, well, a lot of uh, BPH-related voiding disorders. But I'd say a general urology uh, uh, sort of a subspecialty is... Um, you know, I can wear that hat too. Things come to see, the things come into the practice, um, little things that are not quite a huge category. Uh, and I'll see them and it's great. I feel very comfortable with a wide breadth of, of disorders. So if kidney, so if a kidney stone scenario comes in, you don't have to refer them right to uh, a Dr. Boren or Zhao. You, you, you'll, you can take that on yourself, you think, or you, you'd like to? Well, uh, in my, you know, 23 years in the practice, sure, I'll do them on call. But, you know, my practice is so, uh, so, so filled with a lot of BPH that uh, I probably would, uh, you know, offer my colleagues the, the chance to help the patient uh, uh, because uh, they're probably are, are much, uh, you know, more available to handle a kidney stone in the operating room than I would. Because that's BPH. I can't handle it. Right. <laughs> So BPH is what I certainly know that you do a lot of. And, and I think that just kind of, it, it seems like it took, when I first started at NYU about 13 years ago or so, it's lifetime flies. 
you know, you were more of a general urologist. You did some ED. You said, but you did a lot of prostatitis at the time. And then I guess that you know, life takes you in a certain direction, right? So if you just start seeing a lot of BPH, you start becoming, you know, honing, honing in your skills in that area. Is that sort of what happened? That now probably most of your practice is related to male urinary dysfunction. Um, well, yeah, it, it is true. Now people don't usually come in to see me always with a clear-cut diagnosis. For example, they come to see me with they think it's BPH, but it's prostatitis. So my job is to sort of sort out what is what here. So, um, Great. so I will see a lot of uh, people with urinary problems that are, that are male, and I have to sort of figure out, is this a, a prostatitis thing? Is this an, or a BPH thing? Or is this a sort of a compound problem? Or is this male pelvic pain? Is this something beyond... Um, you know, those two diagnoses, is this pelvic floor dysfunction? Right. Um, or is this a kidney stone, you know, or, or is this something um, much, much greater? So it's um, hard to sort of, but but I, I will see people with, 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 you know, symptoms, quote unquote, down there, and I'll sort it out from that point. What's your process, Chris? So here's why I asked, right? We know that a male patient can come with urinary dysfunction. So urinary frequency, urinary urgency, et cetera, nocturia, right? Nighttime urination. And how, what's your process to differentiate between prostatitis, between BPH, or overactive bladder? You know, not long ago, I had um, Dr. Bilal Shantai here on the uh, podcast uh, from Cornell. And my question to him was, and I get, I'm going to relay that question to you as well. You know, in that older patient that I feel that oftentimes they come in with urinary problems, uh, older, what you know, whatever age, you know, let's say sixty years old or sixty and above. They come with urinary problems, and oftentimes they're diagnosed quickly with a prostate problem, despite the fact that they have a bladder. And oftentimes it could be overactive bladder, probably in some cases unrelated to the prostate. So you know, Bilal, in a very tongue-in-cheek way, said, "Well, you have to blame the organ you have. So if you have a prostate, it must be the prostate, right?" So what is your process to differentiate between a patient that comes in and was like, wait a minute, is it prostatitis? Is it overactive bladder? Or is it BPH? Is it a combination? How do you go about that? Well, um, when patients come to see me with uh, these symptoms, um, these are called LUTs or L-U-T-S, lower urinary tract symptoms. Um, right. I usually will start to think of them as irritative or obstructive symptoms. Now, the irritating symptoms are typically traditionally urgency, frequency, um, and the obstructive symptoms are typically decreased force of stream, a sensation of incomplete emptying, double voiding. These are sort of a symptom of obstruction. So, um, an overactive bladder medic, overactive bladder person, or a person with prostatitis and a person with BPH can have all of these symptoms, right? Right, exactly. And a person with prostatitis. So we, for prostatitis, it's usually something which has been something that happened out of the blue. It happened, you were fine, really. And all of a sudden, and it could be a trigger event, such as a, a lot of sexual activity, uh, bicycle riding, even a colonoscopy where the prostate is, can be pushed on a lot or constipation. This is, these are things where, you know, you, you feel, okay, this is more prostatitis, um, because of the nature, the temporal nature of everything. And that's treated a whole different type. That I won't go there and have that's treated, but that's how you kind of sort the diagnosis for between BPH and overactive bladder. 
that's where it gets kind of fun for me. Okay. Because people with overactive bladder, they tend to have no problem with urinary flow at all. They, they'll tell me that they have supreme urgency that they got to, they will knock somebody down to get to the bathroom or just always going to the bathroom with frequency. It's not so much of an obstruction of a problem. And the person with overact, as a person with BPH will have this sort of like my flow is not the same as it was. Now, adding to this is that there's a lot of overlap between overactivity and BPH obstruction. Okay. So people with, who come to see me with that very obstructing prostate can have clear overactive bladder and the person or not, they might just have a slow urinary stream and incomplete emptying. So here's what I do. If I am hearing a patient, let's just exclude the prostatitis. This has been going on for years. Let's say these symptoms. And I have a, uh, and I, I hear in their symptoms and it sounds like overactive bladder. The stream is good. I'll check their post void residual, which is a simple kind of a test in the office where the patient goes to the bathroom and does their best to empty. They don't try too hard, but they just do their regular and they come back and I have them lie down on a, a hospital, on a, on a clinic bed. And I measure the amount of urine on their bladder. If that's very empty, that will give me a potential you know, that'll lead me more towards overactive bladder, but it gets sort of full and full. There's a, a, there's interpretation on that, that I will think about maybe obstruction. Now you may say, so it all resides, it's all kind of matters about how much they have in their bladder. Well, not exactly. If I am still in a way, not clear about what they have overactive bladder versus BPH obstruction with overactive bladder. I will do a very special test in the office, which takes me about 15 minutes called Eurodynamics. Yeah. Eurodynamics is a great test that people can uh, do with their urologist or their urologist practitioner to uncover the real reason behind their symptoms. And this is the, this is the gold standard way that a person can be kind of uh, really clearly diagnosed. Okay. I had patients where I caught clearly they had just overactive bladder, but in fact, they had obstruction with right. overactive bladder. And, so you uh, can indeed have both. You can have BPH, which oh, causes obstruction. Can. Yes, you clearly can. And you can have overactive bladder. Yeah. Um, I want to pause there for a second. And um, you spoke about one of the uh, clinical ways, easy tests to do to deter- to differentiate between overactive bladder and BPH is the po- post-void residual. Easy to do inexpensive. You can see how much urine you have in your bladder. Chris, what's a good number for you? And you said, cause that's, that's due to interpretation. So let's say the patient go, you know, they go urinate, you come back and they have some urine in the, in, in the bladder. At what point would you say, yep, that's a problem. Uh, and at what point you would say, well, they do have some urine in the bladder still, but that's not really a problem. What's that magic number? Okay, so there's no magic number, but most urologists will actually, you know, feel okay with a post-void residuals under about a hundred cc's or milliliters. Okay, right. Um, you know, uh, this is a lot about gathering information and coming up with a clinical impression. This really is not a cut and dry diagnosis with just a few simple, quick tests in the office. The only one which will really, I think, settle an argument is the Eurodynamic study. But when you're, but aside from that, when you're hearing the patient 
when you're palpating their abdomen, when you're doing an, a post-void residual, you're, you're left with sort of a clinical impression. And that's, you know, usually if you're good, you could be, you could be right. But again, if you really want to check yourself, you go with the Eurodynamics. One more little wrinkle in this whole thing is that people's slow flow and feeling of incomplete emptying and that high post-void residual may in fact not just be due to a big prostate. I may add that it could also be due to a underactive bladder. Excellent point. Talk a little bit okay. more about that. Yeah. That is, that's where the bladder for some reason, okay, either it's caused by the nervous system problem or by bladder fatigue, okay, from long-term uh, uh, distension and long-term obstruction, the bladder does not actually squeeze, okay? Right. And therefore, this urine is, is very slow. The bladder doesn't empty, okay? It could be a real problem. Um, so, so underactive bladder, of course, is the opposite of overactive bladder. And by the way, I've seen that clinically as well. It, interestingly, so this is a patient, the, the clinical presentation is actually fascinating because they would say, well, I urinate fine. IPSS, which is a questionnaire to determine um, how good a person, uh, a male is urinating or determining LUTs from a prostate problem perspective, is not that high in some of these patients because their perspective is, well, I, I'm, I'm doing, you know, I'm doing fine. But then you do a, P, a, a PVR, post-void residual test, and they have 400, 500, 600 cc, cc's in their bladder. The Oftentimes, these... that's a result of underactive bladder. And I've seen that a few times. How common is that in your practice? It's fairly common. I mean, as the population gets older, okay, as, as the population develops neurodegenerative diseases such as Parkinson's or otherwise, as the uh, people get longer, more years of, of unattended to obstruction, I see this more often with my patients. Now, adding to this, okay, I'm going to really add some zest to this conversation. Go um, ahead. And by the way, Chris, it's okay. We're, we're, we're just recording here. It's your light went out. I don't want that. You know, don't worry. Just keep going. You look oh, great. Good. I, I like talking about your in the your, urology in the dark too. Okay. <laughs> so you can also have an overactive bladder with an underactive bladder. Oh, now, say, say more. What? Well, this is when the blood, these are, these are patients who have, they have a, um, what we'd say a quivering overactive bladder that gives them the need to go to the bathroom, need to go urinate very often. And when they finally do urinate, it's just not a good blow because the bladder is underactive. Yeah. So you have this sort of almost like a bladder, if you will, to use a cardiac term in atrial fibrillation in a way right that has no real ejection fraction yeah exactly it's like very kind of poor it's like dilated cardiomyopathy with atrial fibrillation you see urology and cardiology are very similar we deal with these hollow organs that pump fluid right so if the whole thing is so fascinating to me it's very it keeps me on my toes throughout the day i love it even I after twenty three years of uh, oh, doing God, it, you never, it. You, you're never, you never get bored. No, I never get bored. So this is a situation where you have urgency. I have to go. I have to go. But you don't have 
for whatever reason, the muscle of the bladder is just not squeezing to let the urine out. Yeah, that, there that's... again, this is where you would probably benefit from a urodynamic, right? So clearly, that's a key, that's a key component to differentiating in your practice. But Chris, not everybody gets a urodynamic, and let's let's come out of your practice a little bit here. Let's go in, you know, general to what. Um, other urologists either do have access to because I just don't see everyone just getting a urodynamic for whatever reason. They oh, may not have it. Oh, yeah. No, not everybody needs a urodynamics. I mean, for the person who is visiting the urologist and uh, says, listen, I've been on this medication called an alpha blocker and there's men, they go by many names. And if, what are some of those names, Chris? Oh, uh, well, by generic names, they're tamsulosin, psilidosin, uh, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. alfuzosin. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's doxazosin and terazosin. Okay, right. but those are just the generic names. We know them by Lomax or Rapaflow. Right, they're brand names. Tartura and Hydrant. Yeah. Um, if they say, "Listen, I, I, whenever I take this medication, I am so much better. I don't wake up that much at night. My flow is better." They're most likely obstructed. There's no need for urodynamics with that one. Right. However, if they don't respond to the medicine or, or if it's, well, if they don't respond to medicine or if they don't tolerate the medication at all, you're sort of, sort of left with questions and you may want to do urodynamics after that. Tell us, uh, tell us that process. So, so what's urodynamic, the patient, what happens to the patient? I know there's a, uh, what, what, you know, facility do they go to? What room do they go to? What do they, what, what's that process like? Okay, so uh, a, a urodynamics for for a man. Okay, let's we're, we're going to take that. Uh, yeah, a, they're pretty they're pretty thin. But I'll talk about the man who ambulates. Here's how it goes. Basically, you come in, okay, to the office, having had a bowel movement, hopefully that day, yeah. and had a, a urination. Okay, we bring you into the urodynamics suite, which is a little room with some some X-ray equipment and a urodynamics console and a monitor. And we basically lay you down, okay? So they're um, with a gown, right? They don't have their clothes on. Oh, you're with a gown. Yeah, you have little booties on your feet. Not a big deal. We make you comfortable. Yep. And um, here's what we do. We have to place, and the word will send shivers up some listeners' minds, but, but a catheter. Yeah. The catheter is very thin. The catheters are the size of a, of a spaghetti noodle, okay? Right. And uh, you will, uh, one is uh, uh, slid up the uh, into the bottom. And one is slid into the penis, into the bladder. Okay. So it's one is through the rectum and yeah. the other one is through the the penis. Yeah. Now, these are special catheters. Okay. Um, they are, they have little tips on them that tends pressure. Okay. Uh, the one in the bladder, of course, has that, but also has another port through which you can infuse liquid. Okay. In order to fill your bladder up. Okay. Some thickers are also applied to the perineum, which is the area uh, beneath, around the, uh, the rectum and underneath the scrotum. Um, and on the leg, just to measure your muscle tension as you're being filled and as you void. And then that's really all. Once that is all done and it takes me five minutes to do, the patient is carefully, you know, uh, allowed to stand up with these, all these things kind of hanging and they stand on uh, and they, they are get in front of an x-ray, a, a C arm, as we say, it's an mm-hmm. x-ray machine that we can, you know, position them in front of so we can see their bladder. Okay. I hook them up to a monitor, which is our urodynamic machine. And then I go to my console 
and I start to fill up their bladder. Okay. Uh, this, for this period, they're going to, they're going to talk to me and they're just going to relax. I, I have a little funnel in front of their penis. Okay. Um, and they have this, they're, they're instructed to say, listen, when you do have an, a normal urgency or a, a desire to go to the bathroom, tell me all your symptoms. Okay. And at that point, what I will do is have them urinate without pushing into this funnel. Okay. Without pushing, but you may say, and a lot of listeners out there may say, but how do I do that if I had this catheter in my penis? Right. Well, the catheter is so thin. It's so thin that you will actually urinate around the catheter. Okay. So what this test provides me is the, the number one, a few things. It will tell me how large capacity your bladder is or how small capacity your bladder is. Mm -hmm. It'll tell me the stiffness of the bladder called compliance. Okay. Because remember, we're measuring the pressure as it's slowly filling. Okay. And that pressure should normally be low as the bladder is filling. Mm -hmm. If it gradually gets quickly high, then the compliance or the stiffness may be a problem. Okay. At that point, um, when the patient feels a real normal desire that they would normally go to the bathroom, I stop the filling process. Oh, and by the way, I fill them with a little mixture of a contrast agent and with normal saline. Okay. The patient will then, you know, in front of the funnel, urinate and the urine will get caught into the funnel and the flow rate will be measured. Okay. Okay. So here we have this beautiful setup where I'm measuring the bladder squeezing pressure as this person is urinating and I'm capturing the flow rate. Wow. Pressure versus flow. Right. All the while, while I'm actually picking a little x-ray of them urinating. Okay. So here's how it gets really good. You can see if it's a high pressure with a normal flow or low flow versus a normal pressure versus a low pressure as they're peeing. Mm. I can combine that with the flow rate to come up with a, um, a, a, a diagnosis of are they obstructed and how much? Uh, is it equivocal, middle of the road, or are they clearly non-obstructed? In addition, lest we not forget our friend, the overactive bladder, I can see if they have overactive bladder. Okay. Mm. I, during their filling stage, I can see, oh, the wicked waves of like bladder contractions. When I see them, I will ask the patient, are you feeling anything? Yeah. How'd you know? I can see it yeah. on the machine. Right. The bladder quivering. And, and then and you can I, also see if it's underactive as well, right? Oh, I can see when they're underactive at the point when they're urinating, if their, if their flow is slow or normal. And their bladder pressures are just not quite making it. Yeah. 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 That's great. Now, our patient with BPH. So here's um, oftentimes what happens with BPH and large prostate is that uh, they are obstructed due to their prostate and they're having either a slow stream or, and usually again, their, their void residual is definitely sometimes a hundred cc's or higher. Now they live like this for a long time, sometimes before they, are diagnosed. How long can a BPH patient have BPH related LUTs, urinary symptoms, before the bladder starts uh, being compromised, roughly? Well, um, 
I don't think we know the answers to that question, but there are a bladder typically will not just conk out. Yeah. When the when the urinary postvoid residuals are pretty much low. A bladder will conk out if the postvoid residuals gradually get higher and higher and higher and stay high for years. Okay. Yeah. So if the postvoid residual is 125 or 150, that's that's elevated, but my, your bladder is not going to conk out because of that. Okay. Right. So I, I see, unfortunately, a lot of patients who come into my office and said, well, my doctor said that my bladder is going to fail if I don't do something quick. And I feel that's a little, a little, a, uh, a little overkill, a, a, little, a little, little bit dramatic. Over, yeah, a little dramatic. Yeah. Dramatic. It's really not going to, that's not really the case. Um, yeah. 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 But, but I, I would say this is a process that goes on for years. Right. And uh, it shouldn't be, be uh, 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 you, you really should keep an eye on it. So let it's me ask like, you this obstruction, right? So BPH patient, they are, there are, they are in retention. They need to get catheterized. Is the mere fact that they got into retention, they're catheterized, will that automatically tell you without a urodynamic that they have a, a bladder that's compromised or not necessarily? That is a great question. Oftentimes people come to see me with a catheter and that exact same story, but I have no backstory on them. Yeah. I don't know if they've been going on for years and years with right. like this large bladder. So, uh, yeah, that's somebody I would want to do urodynamics on because I, they're walking in my office. They could have a, you know, a, a really tough, a weak, weak bladder. And so it's important for me to do urodynamics because it gives the patient and their family some prognostic, you know, indication. If, for example, if, if I look to urodynamics and I can see that they're clearly obstructed, well, then they're going to either be managed on medicine or they have surgery and they're going to get a good feel that, that their, that their improvement is going to be um, very good. And there's an excellent, you know, chance that they'll be back to normal. However, right. if, their, if their bladder is completely shot and they still can't pee, well, then I have to coach them on certain things like, well, we can do salvage surgery to see if by opening up the outlet, it might help your bladder. Okay. And in other words, clear the obstruction for this weak bladder. It may urinate by on its own. Okay. If I just get rid of all the blockage or and or I coach them with uh, some form of chronic bladder management for bladders that don't work. And that may be a chronic urinary indwelling urethral catheter. It might be a uh, catheter which goes underneath the belly button into the bladder called a supercubic tube. Or it may involve for the abled patient a clean intermittent catheterization regimen where they do very quick, you know, very they do daily by inserting a thin little catheter in their bladder to empty their bladder four to five times a day. Yeah, they do it themselves. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Chris, I guess also my question along those lines is, once you, at what point do you start damaging your, your bladder, A, at, with having obstructive urinary problems, likely from the prostate? Um, I think you answered that. Is You have to do urinodynamic, and it depends on many factors. But let's just say there is some damage there on the, to the bladder. Can you, that be reversed within time? So assuming that the obstruction is removed from a therapy or several therapies that we're going to talk about in a bit, can the bladder kind of become healthy again so that it can function properly on its own? Is that possible? Um, I, you know, that I'm not aware of any kind of studies that show regeneration of bladder squeezing pressure, but um, I do know that um, 
if you're blocked and your bladder still works, it's worth giving any and every kind of effort to open up the resistance. Okay. It's mm-hmm. good for the bladder. And, um, once that if, if, even if the bladder is somewhat sort of weakened, um, removing the obstruction, okay, is the best thing you should, you can do for the, for the bladder, whether it's surgery or with, with, uh, medicine, it's the best thing to do. Sure. Um, but in terms of regeneration, yeah, regeneration. Depends, we don't know a little we iffy. Exactly. No, it would, it would, would, it probably is that the, the weakening has been done. Okay. But you can uh, help out a weakened bladder. Now, the interesting thing, some damage done can also be in the form of a large bladder, what is called a diverticulum, which is a reaction to high grade obstruction over the years. Mm. And a bladder diverticulum is basically a reserve bladder that the bladder punches out of its wall to sort of deal with such high pressures. Okay. And, but the interesting thing is, it, while it's like a little storage closet of extra bladder tissue, it has no muscle. So that's a sign of a person who has had long-term obstruction and the bladder has developed this sort of escape route to kind of deal with the high pressures, okay? Without, so it's not know, a good sign. It's not a good sign. And that could be surgically corrected if the bladder or diverticulum is a problem in the post-operative period. Understood. And that, that's an example of a really dramatic fix, okay? Gotcha. All right, here's, we have our BPH patient. We need to open up their prostate, right? So that okay. hopefully their urinary function improves and their bladder hopefully regenerates. Okay. What, how do we do that? Now, I'm asking the question. I know some of the answer, of course, but man, every time I turn around, Chris, there's like another treatment for BPH, another surgical treatment. How many are there? I, last time I counted is like 12 treatments these days. And like, how does one choose one from the other? And I know you've done a few, and I know you, you do aqua, and we'll talk about aqua for sure. Um, but there's a lot of treatment, surgical treatments out there these days for BPH. Yeah, there are. So when patients don't desire or don't tolerate or uh, are no longer served by medical therapy, it's time to sort of, and, and they are obstructed, it's time to think about uh, what kind of surgical approach one can do, or procedural approach, let's just say. The word surgical is not always appropriate. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, so, That's a good point. Um, a lot of it depends on the patient's goals, okay? A lot of it depends on the patient's bladder function, okay? And the prostate size. I say those are the very big things, okay? So let's just take the uh, uh, surgical goals are, um, do I want to be done in, under, uh, in the office, okay? Do I want to be done under anesthesia? That's one, you know, under anesthesia. Do I want to preserve my orgasmic function as best as possible? Okay. And by orgasmic function, I mean, uh, do I still want to have a wet orgasm? Do I still want to have ejaculate fluid when I uh, have an orgasm? The prostate size. The prostate size does factor in because the larger prostates, um, we would uh, not do certain procedures. And the smaller prostates, again, we would not do certain procedures. But so, ur- how about urinary continence? Yes, I know no one would say, do I want urinary continence or do I not? Everybody wants urinary oh, exactly. continence. Do I, do I want to take on the risk of urinary incontinence? And there are some procedures which I really have low examples of that. Let me also add that bladder function is another consideration the urologist and the patient need to take into account. 
if the bladder does not work hardly at all, you probably would not do certain procedures expecting a good result. To maximize the result, you may want to do as much removal of tissue as possible if the bladder were really weak. Okay. So yeah. what's an example of what you would not want to do if the bladder does not function at all? You would probably not want to do a procedure which moves tissue of the prostate away. You would probably want to do a procedure which, um, uh, which, which remove rather than, uh, um, either, you know, squishes the prostate tissue away or cuts right. a little line in. You want to have a, a more resective approach. What are some know, examples of, uh, what are the, what are the names? You can call out the names. Well, there are, there are, there are, there are, I like to divide them into just kind of two categories. One, which don't resect the tissue uh, too much. And which are those? Well, there's the I-10, uh, uh -huh. which is a device, uh, which is implanted into the uh, a patient uh, prostate, uh, which over several days um, will actually uh, uh, remold the prostate by cutting through fibers. Okay. And then it's removed after five days um, in the office and it opens up the prostate tissue enough to help the urinary flow and drop the symptom scores after several weeks. There's another procedure called the posterior urethral lift or the uro lift, yeah. okay, which are uh, the placement of uh, little uh, implants, okay, into the prostate, which effectively push the prostate tissues um, against itself, okay, clearing the way one as if one were parting the curtains. Right, okay? or like a stent, no? Um, that's not a stent, but they're just little tiny, like, pins or so, or implants, yeah. which move the curtains away, okay? Pinning them away from each other. Sure, no resection okay. happening here. No, and there's another procedure, okay, called uh, the Resume, yeah. okay? Which is a, uh, a high-intensity steam, which is focused into the prostate through a little steam uh, in injecting needle, okay, at several locations, so as to cause uh, instant denaturing of, of the prostate tissue and yeah. slow atrophy over several weeks. So all of these procedures purport to have excellent orgasmic function results so that men can be unblocked and have a good, uh, you know, retainment of their retention of their, of their uh, orgasmic function. Great. Um, but you would not, or you would recommend if they have a dysfunctional bladder um, I would be, well, there are certain kind of things where I would be more, I'd be more careful. I probably would, um, divert patients with a very poor squeezing bladder away from them. Yeah. I, if a patient had a, um, large, uh, growth of their prostate in a particular area called a median lobe. Yeah. I may sort of ask them to consider other surgeries. Okay. Great. Those are the those are the kind of things that I would I would sort of think, and also if a person who's in flat out urinary retention, they are coming they they've been in retention and they've had a catheter in for a long time. I typically don't have patients who have been in retention over a long time just go from this drastic scenario to a very minimally invasive office. Right, I don't feel like they're going to get as well served as with a resective category of met of treatments. What now, are some of those? So those, um, there's, there's actually many, um, but uh, the gold standard, okay, which I love to say, is the transurethral resection of the prostate called the TERP. 
that's her. It's been around and the longest, right? It's sort of everybody's you know, trained to do so. Ever and yeah. it, and people get a little bit nervous when people call it by their casual name. It's called the Rotor Rooter. The Rotor Rooter. Who wants that? Scary. Right? Yeah. yeah, that's a scary feeling. I feel like it's just big, like kind of screw <laughs> that's going into like the earth. You know? Right, 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 right. It's Opening things up there. But actually, it is a wonderful procedure, um, and it with uh, with the skills receptionist, um, it can deliver a wide area of, of tissue opening for the patient. It can actually retrieve tissue for analysis. Okay, so, and there's another procedure like this uh, called a a green light yeah. photo vaporization of the prostate. Yeah. Okay, now this is in a sense something similar to with it, uh, a Turk. Okay, it is an instrument which goes through the penis. Okay. And the operator is looking through the lens, either with a camera or through it with their own eyes. And they can actually use this laser, okay? It's a KTP laser, a neodymium YAG, and, and photo vaporize the prostate, okay? Um, with a very hot vapor. And the prize, there's no prostate chips to collect, but this does offer advantages. This laser can be used on patients with a lot of bleeding risk. So the person who cannot get off their blood thinners, um, should have a, a green light because it affords a very good opportunity to open up the prostate gland in a setting where they're not going to bleed out. They have a very low risk of it because the green uh, laser has a brilliant coagulative effect while not only removing the prostate tissue, but also searing uh, uh, down blood vessels that can bleed. Chris, you're versed in green lights, right? And very much so. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember. I mean, look, now I, I think you're considered as an aqua ablation BPH, uh, BPH no, I, uh, urologist. I, I wanna, so, wait a minute. I want to corner myself into that. Yeah, exactly. I, I, have, I, I do a lot of different things. I, but we go further with other procedures. There's also laser procedures beyond the green light laser. These are laser in, uh, nucle nucleation type procedures. So people may have um, their prostate enucleated. Imagine the urologist goes into the penis while the patient's asleep. Of course, all of these are asleep. Okay. For this kind of resective approach and with a laser sort of actually cull out, if you will, the prostate as a whole organ. And then get this, push it literally into the bladder once it's been detached. Okay. And once that is done, Another instrument is placed into the bladder safely. Uh, it's called the morselator, which then uh, sucks the prostate tissue and uh, 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 pulls it out of the of the patient's body and has and the tissue is analyzed by the pathologist. Now you would do this with a patient with a large prostate, usually large. What's the name of that procedure? Well, there are many. There, okay, they, okay. It, it all depends on the uh, on the on the laser. If it's a holmium laser, it's a whole lap. If it's a thulium laser, it's a thulep. Yeah. It's yeah, a diode yeah. laser. I'm not sure what that would be. <laughs> right. Okay. So and many then, choices. And then there are other uh, procedures for large prostates called the simple robotic prostatectomy. Sure. Okay. Hold on or, on that because okay. I'm actually going to have our friend and colleague, Jim Weissock, talk about simple prostatectomies. Okay. That's great. Now, one more thing I just want to add about a lot of these procedures. Okay. Um, you may think, well, what's the story with the orgasmic yeah. uh, side effects of these resected procedures? Because it sounded like the other ones were like the way to go. Well, these resected procedures, um, you um, have a hard time uh, holding on to ejaculation function, unless the urologist is well trained in doing an ejaculation preserving green light. 
an ejaculation preserving chirp. But if they're doing a whole lap, a stool lap, or a simple prostatectomy, they're not going to be able to preserve the orgasm wetness. Okay. Uh-huh. Now there is a meaning another- they're going to shoot blanks or like, like they would say in the streets, or they would just. Try orgasm, yeah. Try orgasm. People, I mean, that requires a, a, a discussion because what does that mean? A uh, urologist will sometimes glibly state, oh, it's just less cleanup. And right. that might be true for some. Right. However, for others, it may not feel the same. And patients right. may not like that. It may not feel as intense. And uh, patients may not like that. So we have to really, uh, in this day and age, be in a discussion to talk about it and not just sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, smile at the patient and go, well, it's, it's less clean up because that may be an insensitive remark to a patient who, you know, really who cares uh, about their ejaculatory function. Okay. Sure. Like, sure. I also really have to take this aqua ablation thing because I haven't even mentioned that. May I or not? We're raising the intensity of, of the desire for people to know. So, yet we're going to get to that in 30 seconds. Sure. In summary, so the patient, what they want is when they're when they have BPH and they might be a candidate for a surgical procedure, they're looking at what you know first is first and foremost what's important to them, other than obviously resolving the problem, ejaculation, orgasmic ability to uh, to uh, have an orgasm, yeah, incontinence. Uh, some procedures, perhaps some procedures, increase the likelihood of urinary incontinence more than others. Is that a correct statement? Yeah, that is true. Um, I think the procedures intrinsically in and of themselves um, should not have a high level. In fact, they all they all really don't. But there are there are. I mean, I think a lot of it depends on the surgeon. To be honest with you, okay. But there are certain procedures which can get mighty close to the sphincter if you don't if you're not very careful, and that could be the uh, simple prostatectomies or the nucleations. Remember, these are larger prostates right. and they're, they're nucleated um, in, in both techniques, okay? And this can get kind of close to the sphincter. The, um, the, the terp and the green light and the aquablation, uh, you're, you can actually see the sphincter while you're operating, so there's less so of a, of a risk. But we're talking not high risk, okay? Um, for aquablation, it's less than 0.1% um, risk of a, uh, for green light, it's going to be low, less than 2 or 3% for chirps, probably similar. Uh, they do vary among studies, but they're low, low, low. Um, people do are very concerned about these things. Um, Excellent. One must remember, okay, that um, if there is a urinary leakage, um, that has to be uh, further analyzed. Well, what kind of urinary leakage is it? Uh, is it due to a sphincter damage or is it due to overactive bladder? And a lot of the times, if it's due to sphincter damage, quote unquote, or weakening, a lot of it can be actually improved with simple physical therapy post-operative. Sure. And that patient's back to normal. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. All right. So here we are. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna talk about the, the the certainly what I think is your number one treatment right now. I know is patient dependent. So here's a um a 2023 systemic uh study systemic meta analysis that says the following on aqua ablation for BPH. Uh, actually, I just saw that this morning as I was preparing for our conversation. It says this: a meta analysis of the available data today suggests that aqua ablation seems to improve LUT in men with BPH while providing 
uh, relatively preserved sexual function. The morbidity and perioperative outcomes after aqua ablation seem to be acceptable. So that's the main conclusion. Mm-hmm. Tell us right. what is aqua ablation and why is it that you use, uh, you utilize this technique, this form of uh, surgical treatment more than I believe others now uh, at this point. Well, when Aquablation came uh, to NYU, it was pre-pandemic, and I, I did about uh, eight cases, and I was really intrigued by the uh, patient's um, uh, re- recovery um, and how easy, actually straightforward it was. Um, it is a robotic procedure, okay? It's the first of its kind to do a transurethral robotic procedure, okay, or the treatment of BPH. It started in 2017. It was FDA approved then, okay, by a company in California. Um, uh, the company's name is called ProStep. Mm-hmm. And um, Medicare approved it on all plans in 2020. Um, a lot of uh, then private insurers um, started to a- approve it as well. And now almost all the major carriers approve it. Mm-hmm. So what is interest? what is unique about this is that it uses a heat-free, Technology. I'll go into why that's important. Yep. To uh, and it's an automated technology. Okay. And it's done uh, through the penis with a water jet, which is the diameter of a human hair. Okay. The water jet is extremely powerful. You know the guys, Geo, on the street with those blasters that clean up the old gum on the sidewalks. That's right. Yes. That's about six thousand ppi of force. Yeah, ablation jet is at eight thousand EPI wow. approximately. Um, now, wow. okay. you may think that uh, wow, that how did, that sounds very destructive and dangerous. Um, when a jet is in the air, it gets a little hard. It's very hard to control, like what you see with the guys on the street. But when a jet is underwater, it's profoundly controllable, okay, and predictable in how deep it can go and penetrate. So. We won't go into the physics of this, but the aqua ablation folks have developed, okay, um, a tool through which this water jet can um, travel in a pendulum-like uh, emotion from the top, to, from the beginning of the prostate all the way to the bottom of the pro- end of the prostate, yeah. and sweep through it, cutting through tissue um, and opening up the prostate tissue with a heat-free mechanism. Why is that important? Yeah, the automated process makes a resection, okay, that would be approximately two and a half hours with a chirp into a 10-minute procedure, which is unbelievable. So you can do this procedure in patients within 10 minutes? That is correct. So from the time the patient, so from the time the patient, this is under uh, local anesthesia, of course. It's not done under local. The patient is asleep. The patient is wheeled into the operating room, and there's a setup that takes about uh, 20 to 25 minutes. General okay. anesthesia, I meant to General say, sorry. The patient yeah. is placed into a position yeah. that is, uh, we call it a dorsal lithotomy. The legs are wide. The patient's asleep. And um, I first insert a probe, an ultrasound probe, into the bottom, which is a unique facet of this procedure. Uh, which basically allows the urologist to view the prostate outside the body. So when I can look at on screen at the whole prostate, this is revolutionary. Now, instead of uh, the traditional green light or turf um, where I'm operating through a straw, I now have 
the image of the prostate on the screen. All of it. Yeah. From cross-section to lengthwise. And here I can tell the robot, I can tell the computer exactly what to do in terms of where to start that, um, you know, water jet, where to end the water jet, uh, where to go conservatively, where to go deep, and where to preserve the ejaculation sparing zone. So the water jet can open up the prostate in a very efficient way. And what I love about this procedure is that I get to do a personalized opening of each patient's prostate, okay? And at the same time, uh, I'm able to preserve their orgasmic function 90% of the time. Can't guarantee it, but for folks that are very intent, I can always uh, be much more conservative in my planning in order to preserve that one aspect. Um, and at the end of the procedure, I pull the robot out and then I go in and I cauterize the bladder neck in order to control, uh, any, you know, bleeding that happens after the water jet passes through. Now, the fact that it's heat free is a, is a big, um, I think deal. Um, it can, it, what you do is you don't have that, um, uh, you don't have that, that thermal energy passing through very sensitive areas like the ejaculation ducts. So I think this is why you have a uh, excellent uh, report card in terms of ejaculatory sparing for this medicate for this uh, surgical therapy. Hmm. Additionally, one more actual thing about the ultrasound in the bottom. What this does, it allows me to see more prostate than I would be able to see if I were to just go operate through a straw, if you will, mm-hmm. with the or with the traditional procedures. So I can get more tissue out of somebody and have the robot do it for me. Well, and that's, uh, so, yeah, it's remarkable. It so, is. And well, is the goal, I mean, aqua ablation has not been long, uh, out long enough to have long-term studies. Oh, but no, we, we do have five-year studies. Right. Um, what we, well, five years is probably, well, I'm looking for 10 and 15 years, which we'll get at some point. And the reason for that, Chris, is... Because oftentimes with the other procedures where they've been around longer, sometimes we know that the recurrence of BPH happens within five to six, seven years. What okay. what do you suspect is the recurrence rate? I, I know you pr- just from clinical experience, perhaps that it would be from aqua ablation. Is it any different? In other words, before somebody will have, again, uh, obstructive urinary problems and require another procedure, if not the same yeah. one. Yeah, that's often kind of a, this is where aquablation becomes, uh, has its own kind of selling point. Um, there, they, people, people have looked at the comparisons between the, um, medical or surgical retreatment rate. Okay. Between a, uh, TERP, which is the gold standard everyone's trying to beat and the aquablation. Okay. And, um, when looking at the data, okay, over hundreds of patients, the retreatment rate for patients who have had a TERP with approximately 12%, those with the aqua ablation, now we're talking five years. Right. Only 6%. Okay. And that's a huge difference. 4% difference. Okay. So that doesn't now, mean it's, that it's, uh, it's those with aqua don't have a situation where they'll, uh, that tissue regrows and it can cause problems, but it's a lot less than TERP or at least 40% less than the TERP. You're going to have a lesser treatment rate if you have an aqua ablation. Yes. Now, what's interesting about aqua ablation, there's no size limit 
when it comes to how big can you do a prostate? You can do as That's big a as great, you great point. Great point. That's, if you have a large prostate, you can do it. If you have a small prostate, you can do it. It's right. automated, it's robotic, it's personalized, and it can spare orgasm better than any resective treatment. So prostate size doesn't matter. I know it matters for other treatments, but not for, so yeah, much for aqua. For a large prostate, uh, for large prostates, another procedure which we didn't really talk about, but I just want to mention it, uh, in order to help patients with large prostates or anybody who really wants relief but doesn't want surgery is the prostate arterial embolization. P-A-E. Where yeah. an interventional radiologist uh, can go through, okay, an artery and actually uh, thread it all the way down to the prostate artery and uh, put a little material, little beads that cut off the blood supply to the prostate gland bilaterally um, or, yeah, or bilaterally. Um, and what this does is over time is it atrophies or shrinks the prostate. This will preserve, this has a very good ejaculation sparing rate, okay? Um, and you do this for a huge, you can do this for Huge prostate, okay? Very large prostates or, you know, l enlarged prostates. I, I wouldn't do it for a prostate that's very small. Wouldn't be a, a appropriate pr procedure. But that is something that some patients do. Chris, who is not a good candidate for aqua ablation therapy? Um, a person who is on blood thinners, okay? Um, I'd like to step away from that a little bit, but I can definitely do patients who are on aspirin. Daily mm -hmm. aspirin is not a problem for me. Okay. I also would say patients with tight and small prostates are probably not the best. The study for aquablation uh, did uh, look at patients 25 grams or end up. So I would say to the patient under 25 grams would probably not be appropriate for an aquablation. Chris, also, when was the last time you've seen a patient? So 25 grams for the audience is pretty much the size maybe of a 25-year-old, the size of a prostate of a 25-year-old or so. Is there, I mean, is there a guy coming in with VPH with a, such a small prostate? Have you seen that? Oh, yes, I have. Oh, no, no. Wow, okay. It's really great. Um, it may not be the size of the prostate, but it might be the angle of the prostate sure. opening, okay? And that's something we call primary bladder neck obstruction or primary bladder outlet obstruction. Oh, and yes. And those can be patients with severe obstruction. Okay. Um, so it's not all about size in urology. Size doesn't matter all the time, no, does it? No, even small prostates can be really tight, angry, and pernicious. So you got to be kind of on guard for anything that comes at your way. Don't just say, I love what I do. Yeah, no, it sounds yeah. like it for sure. We know that. I'm going to say that I, I would probably fancy myself more not a general urologist. That's right. I'm more of a specialist in the area of male body dysfunction. That's right. That's this right. This is what I do. Um, What more can you share with us about aqua? Is aqua ablation the most uh, recent form of surgical treatment for BPH? Is there one that's even uh, newer than aqua? Well, there's the ITIN, which is the device I mentioned earlier, which is office-based. Um, it can open up uh, smaller prostates, okay? Yeah. Um, and that, that is, that's probably uh, one of, that is, that's the latest, okay? Um, but more, the more treatments are in development. But the aqua ablation, let's see, um, it is growing across the country. More and more people are buying the robots across the country. Um, New York uh, City um, itself, it just last year had, I guess, single digits 
in, in terms of who had the robot. Now it's double digits um, and it's it's spreading the, the Northeast. It's all over the Midwest and in the West Coast. Um, so um, it is growing. People are sort of getting on to the fact that you can have a deobstructive procedure done and and have the highest rate of orgasmic preservation. Yeah. I think that's, I think people are starting to talk about this more. Now there is a growing number of people who are doing, uh, or programs that are doing holmium lasers, the enucleation. And right. um, while this is also um, a, a, a venerable uh, procedure to open up large prostates, it doesn't preserve orgasm too well, okay? So I think the more and more people are open to talking about sexual preservation, the more they're going to find out that aquablation probably sits better with them than these other types of procedures like the holmium enucleation or tholium enucleation. Um, and I used to do that. Um, do I we had, get tissue from aqua? Is there any tissue that that one can analyze for prostate cancer if they yes, use, if, if if they want yes. to? Yes, because when I go in to do the focal bladder neck cauterization, I do take some swipes um, of tissue and uh, send it out. Okay, good, that is good. correct. Um, what else? I mean, final thoughts on aqua ablation. I think you were very thorough. I think that you know you were very thorough on on the whole process of you know how to differentiate with between BPH and other urinary problems. So, what are some final thoughts? I think if people want to learn more about it, they should go on aquaablation. Okay, dot com. Okay. And Prosep has a wonderful website. Okay. I'll I'll put it in our show notes as well. Oh, that's great. They can they can educate themselves and they can even find an aqua ablation uh specialist uh nearest to them. Okay. Chris, how many this is a scenario like any other surgical procedure Isn't where it? I would assume the more you do, the more experienced you are, the better you are at it. Like anything right. else. Um how many have you done? So if somebody comes to you, Dr. Kelly, how many of these have you done? And, you know, for obvious reasons, how many, what, what's the answer? So, so just to put in context, we, uh, uh, NYU Langone Health uh, bought the aqua ablation machine. And uh, I started uh, just sh uh, last year in May, 2022. Yeah. Okay. So since then I've done actually as of yesterday, 151 or 152. Wow. Okay. Of, of them, so I have a good experience. Still, you know, compared to my uh, esteemed colleagues out in Georgia and you know in New York City, yeah, not as much as them, but yeah. I'm loving it. And it's, it's, I think what's so great about it is that once you've done five of them, I mean, your doctor is up and running. It's not. It's really. Um, it's a. It's an intricate process, but it's quite easy to to learn and to be very good at quite early on. So it okay. doesn't require such a steep learning curve, right? That's a great point. It doesn't. There are other procedures like um, enucleation with the lasers, a holmium boom. It is a steep learning curve. And God bless those great urologists that do that. Um, it does take a while to get sort of, um, you know, to cut your teeth on that kind of a procedure. Um, I know that very well because I, I used to do that. Yeah. Um, uh, so, but, but with the aqua ablation, it's different. It's different. And that's what's so good about it because people are going to be, um, uh, able to find urologists who can do this procedure and it's not going to be so far and few between in the country. Great.
Chris, thank you so much. How can people find out more about your work and any uh, websites or anything? We'll put it on the link on well, the show, the show go notes. Go NYU Urology, um, okay. and they'll find my name um, on a list of providers there. Great. Chris, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being on and educating everyone on BPH and aqua ablation. I appreciate it. Have me back. We'll talk about prostatitis and pelvis. Oh, okay. Uh, be careful what you it. ask for. Be careful what you ask for. Exactly. No, we'll do a lot of stuff. I And this was a pleasure to be here. I really thank you for giving me some platform to talk about everything. Okay. Thanks, Chris. Have a great day. Thank you. See you next time. Our next sponsor partner has a product I use literally every day. I'm talking about AG1. You know, I've been using green powders mixed in drinks for a long time, and it has not always been a great experience, right? The powder clumps up a little bit. It tastes horrible, but you know what? You chug it anyway because it's good for you. AG1 changed the game. With In AG1, you have 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day the right way. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, and energy to help you recover and focus and help you age successfully. To make it easy, AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Geo Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify, as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, Thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with.